VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, May the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. The number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. All right, beautiful blue sky day. Starting to warm up a little bit where we are here on Kemmel Road. Hopefully the same for you. Good night for hockey. All right, so game three between the Growlers and the Reading Royals takes place tonight at uh, Mild, at Mary Brown Center. Pardon me, I got an NBC at the Mary Brown Center. Looking forward to the game. I want to say congratulations to these young female ballers. Remember the St. John's, both U12A and U and the B division. They both represented the uh, city and won the provincial championships over the weekend. Thanks to Erica Coltis for sending along the info. Congratulations to the girls and coach, Mark English. Great stuff. All right, so and Growlers back. Basketball, just around the corner, take kick off their inaugural season. Uh, starts on June the 3rd at the Fieldhouse Memorial University, so I know people are looking forward to that, especially when you have a local Nicole Long in the lineup. Okay, a couple interesting notes. So it's today in history, 1969, that Apollo 10 transmitted the first color photos of the Earth from space. Some of them are very historic photos that I'm sure you can picture in your mind's eye. Also today in history, back in 1998, members of Sinn Féin, the political winner of the Irish Republican Army voted to accept the Good Friday Peace Accord, you know, potentially ending decades of bloodshed in Ireland. And so Sinn Féin, the political wing, not the provost, the provisional army, which, of course, is the militant branch of the old IRA. All right, let's stick abroad here for a second. You know, people are talking about who's a dictator and not, and, you know, the invocation of the Emergencies Act and martial law and all the rest of it. This is particularly strange stuff. And it's coming from the Philippines, a country with some 100 million people. So the election was yesterday for the new president to replace Duarte, of course, an absolute lunatic. It seems to folks in the Philippines, either they've rewritten history or something strange is going on in the Philippines. Because remember back in 1986, people power. They ousted then-president Ferdinand Marcos. There was lots of infatuation with his wife Imelda Marcos and her, I don't know, hundreds of pairs of shoes, which is what people talked about in the photos that dominated the news. But anyway, they had embezzled and stolen billions of dollars. Martial law was in place for a long time in the Philippines. He was eventually driven out of the country, given safe haven in Hawaii, of all places. They managed to recover some billions of dollars, but nowhere near the amount of money that the Marcos actually stole. His son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., apparently his nickname was Bong Bong, Bong Bong Marcos Jr., looks like he's going to be the next president. You know, sometimes your surname can carry a long way in this world, but even if you are a notorious dictator thug like Ferdinand Marcos was, looks like his son is going to win. He got over 30 million votes in the election. They've tabulated 97% of the votes. The current vice president, Lena Robredo, a human rights activist, looks like she's going to finish second, and then boxing legend Manny Pacquiao actually looks like he's going to finish third. But imagine, Ferdinand Marcos Jr.? He's going to be the next president of the Philippines? Man, weird. All right, I know that's not of much concern around here, but when we were throwing around who's a dictator and who's not and what the history of the world shows, I thought it was just an interesting tidbit. Okay, 
So yesterday evening, arriving at St. John's International, was the first government charter group of Ukrainian refugees. So there was 166 refugees aboard, including 55 children. There's a bunch of different stories going around. You know, we know uh, last week or the week before, we're not exactly sure how many Ukrainians have arrived in Canada, but they say it's in the neighborhood of approaching 2,000 have arrived already. And we've seen a wave arriving here. There was a doctor lady who arrived a couple of weeks ago, five students that are continuing their post-secondary education, working towards their PhDs uh, and master's diplomas, degrees, pardon me, at Memorial University. And so there's a bunch of different stories about the makeup of certain families and what they need and emergency housing and whatnot. And the government is playing some role, but they, because there's a change of protocol, with the swift nature which we're, the country was able to welcome Ukrainian refugees, there's some confusion out there. But anyway, if you'd like to play a role, in helping and welcoming the Ukrainian refugees, you know what to do. I'd connect with the Association for New Canadians to start with. So here's a couple of curious things. Amongst them are different families, lawyers, children, grandparents. Some of them actually have a job already awaiting them. One fellow who was interviewed, his name is Stan. He's got a job lined up at the mine in Bay Vert. And there's a lot of work to do. And there will indeed be the concept of charity begins at home, and we have to look after our own before we look after refugees, immigrants, and any of the four silos, when I think we can probably do both at the same time. Here's some of the controversy that was brought forward, and I don't know if this is fair or foul, but they were welcomed by Premier Fury and Minister Jerry Byrne. Some of the faces were really quite pleased. Maybe it was simply to touch down in the province and or Maybe they appreciated being welcomed by the Premier and the Minister responsible for the portfolio. I don't know. Sometimes it's quite easy to just say that, well, this is a photo opportunity. No need to make a spectacle out of people who are running for their very lives. And worried about the family they left behind, especially adults between 16 and 60 who are part of the war machine now and fighting back against the Russian invaders. So I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's absolutely a case of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you show up, it's uh, declared a photo opportunity. If you don't, is where's the premier? If the cameras are there, people might say, why are we doing that to these uh, refugees? If they're not there, what about transparency? So it's a really no-win situation. It really truly is. So you can talk about it from whatever angle you're interested, but... For those 166 people, I'm sure they're more than relieved, and there's a lot of work to do. Whether it be some of the work the government's already done and their four-person team set up a shop in Warsaw, Poland, and the Association for New Canadians, and some individual families are willing to play a role. There was one story shared where the two young fellows are hockey players, or pardon me, the two young ladies that arrived were figure skaters. One of the videos really an outstanding skater, and they're looking for some hockey equipment and other stuff and if you want to play a role you know what to do and yes i get it the concept of taking care of your own because people are really struggling they truly are and it's hard to even know where to begin the conversation about cost of living inflationary pressures and fundamentals like the cost of gasoline the PUB, in some vague reference to the shift in commodity pricing, even though the price of a barrel of oil has, was down yesterday, and I know there's not a direct correlation between the price of a barrel of oil and the eventual price of gasoline, given that's a speculative market uh, adjustment made on gasoline. So anyway, I'll waste my breath one more time and say it would be nice if people from the PUB involved in the petroleum pricing panel can come to the media and give us a better understanding, elaborate on how and why the interruption formula was brought to bear again last night that saw the rise of the price of gas some 11.3 cents. So what does that make it now at the pumps? 216, 217? 
And that's just right here on the Avalon Peninsula. And I know it's different in different parts of the island and in Labrador. Okay. You know, there will be continued demand, whether it be Shadow Minister Tony Wakeham or individual members of the community, asking the obvious question, where does this end? Now, the Premier made some reference last week that there might be some additional cost of living supports to be discussed in the House of Assembly and possibly brought out because folks who were struggling this time last year are struggling mightily today. So the breakdown on the price of gas, and so if Tony Wakeham thinks it's a good question, and I think it is, is... You know, there's going to be that divide, that China wall, the plausible deniability that politicians say, we don't set the price. The PUB sets the price. Okay, that's true, but the government does have some controls. And I know doing away with certain government revenue will be picked up elsewhere, but even in the short, medium term, some relief is not a nonsensical request. It simply is not. The breakdown where there are some controls, and Mr. Wakem would ask questions like, can you tell us how much money the government brings in based on the carbon tax? Can you tell us how much the province brings in based on the provincial tax on gasoline? Can you tell us how much the province brings in with HST associated with all of these different fuels? The breakdown, there's a couple of things the province has control over, a couple of things they don't. Price of the product, okay. The federal excise tax at uh, 10 cents, nothing you can do about it. Provincial tax, in and around 14.5 cents, they can control that. The carbon tax, which is now just over 11 cents, they have some control over that. So what the right answer is and what needs or should be done, I don't know. But I do know that people are absolutely fearful of opening the mailbox to find a bill, to go fill up their vehicle, to go to the grocery store, to pay their insurance premiums, to pay their cell phone bill. It's just becoming completely unmanageable. And what governments are going to need to wrap their mind around in short order, whether it be federally or provincially, is the economy is not the government, right? Economic activity is not and should not be solely based on government intervention, the government creation of jobs, the government subsidies for individual corporations. The economy is driven by me and you and our ability to spend, period. So if so much of our money is flowing to entities where the profits are taken offshore, away from the province, away from the country, then our ability to help fuel local business, and whether it's a multinational chain here, with fewer and fewer dollars to spend on whatever items, not only luxurious items, but some basic necessities, then that brings a stall to any GDP growth. So they've just got to try to figure out some sort of happy medium here. Because I know a lot of people who do pretty well in this world, then when you add in the debt load and the increase in the Bank of Canada's uh, benchmark rate, we have found ourselves in a perfect storm. So the PUB, you know what? I'm sure they don't care what I say. But it is high time that the politicians stop hiding behind the PUB, and it is absolutely high time that the PUB, who works on our behalf, and as a regulator has done yeoman service for the people of the province, but at this point, it really is incumbent for you to let us know, elaborate, because if people are stuck in their minds thinking, the price of oil is this, or the price of gas should be X, if that's not a direct correlation, which I kind of understand the market, but maybe, just maybe, you can help us out. Put yourselves forward. Where's the downside? You know, the names of the commissioners, and I'm not here to dox people, but the names of the commissioners are publicly available. So maybe, just maybe, 
you can give us a better understanding. And I know the price of oil might not be the thing that people are concerned with, but then you, you factor in, while the political shenanigans are blaming one politician or another for inflation, you know, despite the issue that is complex and many of much of it uh, comes to bear, the pressures come to bear from outside forces, while we are getting on with that nonsense, just look at Shell yesterday. They posted their first quarter earnings. It excludes one-time items and fluctuation in the value of some of their inventory. Okay, $9.1 billion, up from $3.2 billion in the same uh, period last year. They beat the analysts' expectations of $8.2 billion. So all the while, we're playing the political nonsensical game, some of it based in fact, much of it based in fantasy. The issue of greed or profitability is laughing behind the scenes. They're watching politicians play their games, and we are not focusing in on what is actually contributing to some of these issues. Yes, global supply chain interruptions, right? Absolutely contributing factor. 100% it is. But profitability is at a 70-year high. So when someone like Minister Gibo talks about reinvesting oil and gas company windfalls into carbon storage and capture... You know, something good for them, something good for us, something good for the planet, something to create an opportunity, create an opportunity for a new startup or individuals to get a job, and or just the extraordinary wealth being generated, not to our benefit, good for people who work for Shell, good for the shareholders of Shell. But why we play that game of who's responsible for global inflation... 70-year profits, do you think that plays a role? Pretty sure it does. You want to talk about it, let's go. And I wonder what this looks like. Now, record-setting high gas prices right across the country. And we're up to Vancouver. Unbelievable. Will that have an impact on Marine Atlantic? Because the bookings, they were reporting uh, an increase tenfold, which is very good news for us. But are these travelers going to start having a mindful eye to what, 217 to fill up in St. John's, really? So I just wonder what trickle that will have. And also, the whole concept of come home here, which I know many of you think is a stupid idea, even though I think it's, you know, what are we, where are we going to go? If we're told, quote-unquote, live with it, and we know that we've got a really once strong sector in hospitality and tourism, to do what we can to foster it sounds like a good idea to me. And so the province decided to make uh, free admission into the historic sites. Good for the visitor. You know, it would potentially influence them to run a little further afield, to have a look at different parts of the province. Good for the locals, who maybe, just maybe, would like to go see one of these sites, free of charge. But then you factor in... The Sunday drive, forget it. Sunday drive's not on anymore. And so for even locals who'd like to go back to their hometown for come home here, it's not just, you know, you can stay at mom's, no sweat. But people absolutely, when we are pinching pennies, are looking at whether or not the couple, three, four tanks of fuel makes it a reasonable opportunity to get away. Anyway, you want to talk about it? And even on the cost of living. And go down to the Competition Bureau. They put forward an application to block Rogers Communications' purchase of Shaw Communications. So it's a $26 billion deal. Shaw, not a major player. They got a couple of million customers in Ontario, Alberta, and B.C. But get this. Rogers, Bell, and TELUS serve about 87% of Canadian subscribers. The Bureau application is quite clear. It would prevent existing competition of wireless services in those three or four mentioned provinces, uh, suppress further competition in areas like 5G, and so an established independent, low-price competitor. They've seen their Shaw's customers have doubled, and they've been able to decrease the price of data. So good on the competition board to try to, bureau to try to keep their eye on it. And then we talk about some other opportunities that have been brought forward by, for instance, the federal government, the Atlantic Loop. 
I had many people really quite cross with me at the federal level, uh, level, especially on the liberal side, that when I called it a branding exercise, they said, oh, come on, give us a chance to work this out. Then, lo and behold, Minister LeBlanc says, well, the federal government needs to do its due diligence. It's probably a good idea, while we're all stressed out and freaking out, that you do your due diligence before you make these glossy announcements. So the Atlantic Loop, was it ever going to be a real thing, a real benefit to the province? Would it just see the hierarchy of Hydro-Quebec stomping on everybody else who tries to become a partner? These issues are not about the opportunity to generate power, of which we have ample. It's transmission concerns. So Hydro-Quebec, which has invested a ton of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, to try to complete the New England Clean Energy Connect Transmission Plan in the state of Maine, they're taking it to court. The executive branch put forward the approvals for this transmission project, some 244 kilometers of a hydro corridor. Then there was a referendum, and the people said no, they didn't want it. Some 59% voted against it, so they're taking it to the court to see if the initial approvals should be kept in place. Tricky one to to adjudicate, isn't it? The people don't want it. Uh, What do we expect governments to do? But this is going to be the issue. Power can be generated by so many sources, and we all know them, and they're on the tip of our tongues. It's whether or not the various states are going to want to see the clear-cut, the establishment of transmission routes to get the power generated, whether it be from this province, Quebec, Ontario, wherever, to get it to the last market, northeastern United States, of which the numbers of people, the consumers and customers, tens and tens and tens of millions. So we'll keep an eye on what happens, and that's in the courts today down in the state of Maine. I think that's an interesting one. Okay, uh, one additional death yesterday when the province updated its hub. That brings 169 total. Our condolences. 14 people in the hospital, four in critical care for the purpose of information. And very quickly, before we get to your calls, how are we doing out there this morning, Dave? I can't say that I really knew Derek Hogan very well, but we had a lot of mutual friends. And his group of buddies were an eclectic, interesting group of guys and women But inside that group, there was a lot of really highly intelligent people. And don't swell your heads, boys. But there really were. Derek came to the province from Halifax, and he spent 33 years at legal aid. And at one point said he'd rather drive a cab than to work for a law firm. One of the most accomplished lawyers in the province, one of the great legal minds in the province. Lawyer friends to a man and to a woman would acknowledge exactly that. Derek has passed at the age of 66. The amount of time he's spent in Supreme Court is simply extraordinary. Thousands of cases in the criminal courts. He appeared before the province's appeal court more than 140 times. He took 12 of those cases all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Is there anyone else in the province that can display that track record? I mean, truly extraordinary. An interesting, very frank, and very honest man. And like I said, I didn't really know him very well, but we had a bunch of mutual friends, and his loss is going to be felt around the legal community and amongst his pals. So our condolences to his family and to all of his friends. Derek Hogan, dead at the age of 66. It's one of the reasons when people used to say, I need the province to pay from a lawyer from a private sector firm. I don't trust the caliber of attorneys at legal aid. Well, Derek Hogan was there to tell you that. You'd just be lucky if you got Derek Hogan to represent you. All right, we're on Twitter. Or VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Now, myself and David picked the tune out back a little earlier this morning from Donovan. And his greatest hits was uh, number four on the album charts back in 1969. Then I'm scrolling through a little bit further, and I find that it's also Donovan's 
uh, 76th birthday. His real name is Donovan Phillips Leach, but he performed under the name, the single, as Donovan. Here's a little Sunshine Superman. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number three. Anne, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Oh, this is Diane. Oh, Diane, I apologize. I had Anne on my screen. My apologies. Welcome to the show, Anne. Diane. <laughs> I know, it's the joke. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Diane. <laughs> uh, I was wondering, Patty, now this is just in my mind. Yeah. Okay. If the price of gas going up so much as it has been now in the last few weeks would have anything to do with the government trying to get people to buy electric cars? I've heard that before. Uh, here's my take on that. I think that would have very little to do with it. For starters, the the electric vehicle conversation is there's some people buying them now, but many people are waiting for the advent of solid-state batteries, looking for the infrastructure to be put in place, which is not necessarily there in most of the country, and that's down the road. The gas price issue is today. So I think the electric vehicle conversation, like if this was five years from now and every dealership had a bunch of electric cars on the lot, that would be an easy assertion to make, but I think that there's not much of a direct correlation today. Just think about some of the cities who would be pushing this the hardest. The city of Ottawa this morning Gas is about a dollar ninety-seven. So if they were controlling gas prices in Ontario, that would be a little bit higher than that. Even in some of the places where they're pushing back against it. Now I think the lowest price of gas in the country is in Edmonton, about a dollar sixty-three or something or other this morning. Right. So if if there was more and more electric vehicles available and the infrastructure was in place, I could understand that thought. But I think the immediacy of today and gas versus five, ten, twenty years down the road for electric vehicles makes it probably not the relationship that some people might think it is. Okay, because it, it is, with everything going up, like food and everything, and now gas, I mean, you're talking about come home here now. Yeah. And most people are not going to be able to travel. Which Not the, even in, in Newfoundland. I agree with that. Like some of the plans that we had to traipse around the island are probably going to be on hold. Uh, and which is also why I brought out, I wonder if Marine Atlantic has seen any cancellations because they were quite pleased, as was I, that their bookings were way up, way, way up. I just yeah. wonder if the people are looking at the price of gas. But let's, let's just think about that one step further. If you wanted to, say, make your trip and uh, choose... Kamloops versus St. John's, yeah. then you're only talking like seven or eight cents, which is, would that be enough to derail your entire travel plans for the summer? I don't know. Might be for some, but the price of gas at a record high is right across the country. So hopefully that doesn't mean people are going to cancel their plans to come here. Yeah, I hope not. I, I, I really hope not because, you know, it, it would be uh, a great avenue in, in, this, in this time now for people to come home and see things, you know, because... Sure. You know, because of COVID and everything else that was going on for so long, right? And, well, anyway, I just wanted to pose that question this morning because it's been on my mind. And I would like to give a warm welcome to the Ukraines, too, that arrive in Newfoundland. Yeah, we wish them all the best of luck to get set up and established and maybe put down some roots. And hopefully in the years to come, we'll see that those 166 people are still here and enjoying their life and contributing to society with whatever form or fashion. Yes. And thank you very much, Patty. You have a good day. You too, Anne. <laughs> Sorry, Diane. <laughs> okay. All the best. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Rick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Beautiful one here on the West Coast. Glad to hear it. Uh, Patty, I got two topics to talk this morning. I'm going to be sh- very short with them. 
uh, gas prices, Patty. I, I was watching NTV News last evening, and oil dropped seven fifty a barrel. Yep. How can the PUB raise our gas, whatever it was this morning, eleven or twelve cents a liter, when the gas drop, uh, the gas, the oil, the crude dropped seven fifty a barrel, and when as soon as it goes up four or five dollars a barrel, they're right on the horn to nail us to the cross for the price increase. But when a when a falls at seven fifty a barrel, we don't see nothing, but it goes up. So I like to know their questioning or reasoning behind their decisions. It's an excellent question, and it's one people ask all the time. Uh, and, you know, like even in the province of Alberta, where they've set a, a floating or moving scale based on the price of West Texas Intermediate with how that pertains to the price of gas, which makes people feel good. But it's also a big reason why I'd like someone from the PUB to come on and talk about that, to explain themselves, because... I try to understand the market as best I can. There's not a direct line between the price of a barrel of oil and the liter of gasoline. Crude makes up about 70% of each gallon over the last decade. If I buy oil today, like I'm the Irvings, and I buy oil today, regardless if it takes 30 days to get to my refinery, I pay the price that I, uh, that I purchased the oil on today. Gasoline is a matter of crude being pumped, shipped to the refineries, refined there, distributed out, which is why they price gasoline on a speculation market. There's a 30-day 30, a 30 spec, a 90-day spec, so I get why people think there's a direct line between the two, but there's not really. And, you know, I don't want to be the one to try to explain those complicated issues uh, because I have just the limited understanding which is why I will continually think that the and say that the PUB should come on if they're going to be the experts on setting the prices tell us exactly how and why the drop in the price of oil has seen a spike in the price of gas you know because I, I can do it the best I can but I think it's incumbent on them to do it well well Patty a few years back oil was up to almost 180 dollars a barrel yep. and we were paying dollar fifty a liter for a gas so I can't see the reasoning behind it you know what I mean some of the northeastern the biggest refineries on the north east of the United States and in Canada, uh, limited capacity. Like they shut down one of the major contributors to the market outside of Philadelphia. We know there's a minor contribution to shutting down come by chance. There are some other refineries in this neck of the woods that are working on limited uh, amount of liters being produced per day. That's not for me to say. It's just numbers that I read when I try to look up these sources. Same thing is ha apparently happening on the Gulf Coast, Gulf Coast of Texas. So... Again, I wish someone who had all the expertise in this field would do the best they could to explain it to me and to you and to everyone else out there who says, what is the PUB talking about? The price of oil went down and the price of gas shot up. We need to understand exactly what's going on. And you know, Patty, like we got our own oil offshore, you know, and none of that comes here. Not a drop of that comes here. That all goes to the eastern seaboard. Well, no, not necessarily either. Um, plus, we got no nowhere to put it around here. We have no refinery that can tackle it anymore. Yeah, I know, Patty, and th this is the problem because years ago, when Mr. Sheen built that refinery, that was built to, to process heavy bunker crude, and uh, and the, as the years rolled by, and we found out that we had oil offshore, Patty, we should have. Uh, got whoever was in charge at the refinery at the time to build an extension on to refine this later crude we have here. And we should be getting a pump, uh, break at the pumps, Patty. Really, you know, this is all our own resources, and we don't see anything to help the people out here in Newfoundland when it comes to our own oil. 
Yeah, it's a complicated issue. Like I hear a lot these days, for instance, on the Conservative Party of Canada front and one of the contenders for the leadership, Mr. Poliev, he's talking about uh, banning the import of Saudi oil, Russian oil, Russian oil, even though we don't import any Russian oil and maybe Iranian oil or what have you. But that's also very curious, isn't it? Because what the market of the, the party of the free market is going to dictate to the Irvings or anyone else where they buy and what they buy to refine in their privately owned and operated facilities. It's sort of a strange way to do business if you're the so-called free market capitalist. But I get the argument, but can you imagine the shrieks coming from the right-leaning political spectrum here if the NDP suggested that the Irvings be told what to do by the federal government? It's all just really quite curious now. It's, yeah. you know, it's throwing yeah. chum in the water as opposed to policy these days. Well, all we got to do, Petty, on that part of it is look at the end of the year for people, the richest people in the world, and just see how far the Irvings is going to go after this year and other companies, shell companies and everybody else, how their net profits soared in the year 2022. Uh, on that note, Petty, I, I, I'll go to the next topic. Okay, uh, go ahead. Petty, about the garbage being spewed out in the woods and in the gravel pits everywhere. And this is being a major problem right across the island. And one big problem, Petty, that I have with it is that uh, a lot of people gets out there and does a lot of volunteerism picking up the garbage. And what kills me, Petty, is that if they drag it to the dump, they got to pay out of their own pocket to bring this garbage they picked up or the ditches and in the pits that the, that the government, the problem that the government caused themselves by uh, stopping people from going in on dumps on weekends. Like I know back, back a few years ago, Patty, we could go in on Saturday and dump off our household garbage, like things that, not our household garbage, but things that we didn't need at no charge. And they should bring back in this policy, Patty. So this way, everybody around as volunteers plus other people wouldn't be throwing their garbage in the gravel pits. Because people don't want to bring it to the dump right now because they got a fee, they got to pay a fee to dump off the garbage and not even their own garbage. Yeah, the the change to waste management here is not only complicated for all the truck and garbage all over God's creation. Some of the communities lost the opportunity to uh, generate some revenue, especially towns that had industrial or commercial landfills. And yes, you know, uh, the problem for me is I hate to say that because of the tipping fees, people are dumping it in the woods, even though it's probably true, because it feels like I'm offering them an excuse when there is no excuse. But I yeah. completely get your point, Rick. Yeah, well, Patty, the government should come over and have have this even just for the summer months, Patty, because that way here people will be out volunteering, cleaning up the garbage and that's all I saw. I go down the road here, Patty, a couple of miles heading towards Stephenville, and all you see is Kentucky Fried Chicken Bags, Mary Brown's Chicken Bags, coffee cups from Tim Hortons, you know, this brutal. People don't even drag it home to put it in there. In there. They can pick it up from the, the retailer, eat it on the way home or whatever he does, drink their coffee, and when he gets up the road and it's empty, down the window comes out on the yep. road it goes. Un completely unnecessary, and I, I just don't know how people can bring themselves to do that, but we see it all the time, don't we, Rick? Yeah, uh, I really I appreciate your time. Last word yeah. to you, sir. Okay, Patty, thanks for your time, and I hope that the government takes heed to this bit of a voice. I appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. Okay, Rick, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going up to St. Mary's Bay. Mary Verna Hayworth, she's the mayor of St. Vincent, St. Stevens, and Peters River, to talk about the potential to open up a fish plant in St. Mary's Bay. Not a nickel of government money required. There's a proposal on the table. We'll see what the mayor has to say after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the mayor of St. Vincent, St. Stephen's, St. Peter's River. That's Verna Hayward. Good morning, uh, Mayor Hayward. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Paddy. Welcome to the show. On this gorgeous morning on the Irish Loop. Yeah, well, I can't wait to get back out on the loop. So we've been talking with Mary Lee, Mary Ryan, about yeah. the proposal in St. Mary's to get that fish plant up and running. Where do you come from? Uh, well, do you really think it makes much sense when we have somebody that wants to start a business in our area, employ people, and they just can't get the go-ahead from government? Like, I really want to know who's the boss in this province. I want to know where Premier Fury stands on this. Like, you're talking about the price of gas, the price of food, and most everybody would rather get a check weekly rather than EI from a project where it brings in probably four or five hundred dollars. Like, people can't afford to live. And I mean, really and truly, like, we're left hanging. Uh, it was exactly six months ago today that we had a joint council meeting with our MHA, who, by the way, has, got, has done her utmost to help us but I guess she's hitting a brick wall uh, and we got a tour of that plant now I know nothing about a crab plant I did work on the fish plant in Chapassi many many years ago uh, before I pursued a teaching degree but uh, based on what we saw that day it was a great facility and they have put a lot of work and a lot of effort into that and employed many, many people who got their hours last filed for the file up for EI. So there's really something wrong with this picture. I mean, here we are, we're in a crisis with gas prices, a crisis with food prices. People can't afford to live. Look, we're planning come home your activities. Most of the activities are going to be free, but some of it's not. And we're hoping people are going to come to a dance and pay to get in and buy some drinks and stuff, but who's going to be able to afford to do it? And here we got this wonderful state-of-the-art plant, like right here in our midst that would employ people from all over the area, plus outside the area. Maybe some of those people who arrived last night from Ukraine, if they were trained, and uh, here we are, we can't get it open. I understand. So I should have probably asked this question of uh, Mayor Ryan or Mayor Lee, and I'm not meaning to put you on spot. Do you happen to know what a full complement of workers would be at this plant? According to Steve Ryan, it could be as many as 200 people. That's a significant number. I mean, remarkably, with my family connection to St. Mary's Bay, and of course that drives a bit of bias. uh, That's human nature. There's not much I can do about it. But to know there's not one processing plant in St. Mary's Bay is incredible. Exactly. And I mean, we've got like so many people who need work. Uh, Like I've been on council for nine years now. And when the plant closed about seven years ago, so the government, uh, you know, provided some money for them to have programs. Uh, The programs don't usually start till the fall and we're into winter and then uh, we have to have a place for them to go in inclement weather. And don't get me wrong, we have seen much success with uh, the projects. We've got lots of things done around our area. But people are demoralized and the morale is pretty low. Many people want to go to work and they can't live on what they're getting on EI. And, like, it, it, to me, it just doesn't make sense when we're trying to, like, the, gov- the spin-offs from this would be just amazing. Like, uh, you know, the Irish Loop is the most travel loop in the province. And if I were to have a clicker, I'm on the main road, to click off all the cars, and I'm not sure what this year is going to be because people can't afford it. 
So all these come home your plans and all these dreams, but if they don't do something with the price of gas and they don't put people to work, like where are we going to be with all this? It's an excellent question. And I guess that's all summarized by where does it end? Because that's where sometimes we kind of lose sight of what long-term implications might be for anything under the sun. It's going to be painful in the next week or so or a month or two to pay these types of prices at the pump. But then what does that mean for other areas? Because it's not just about my pocketbook. It's not just about the price of food. It's about the fact that I have less and less money to spend anywhere else and any oh, exactly. other things beyond the necessities and the I mean, ripple we effect met in november uh we were gung-ho then and we should have pursued like we should have gone on the bandwagon and made more noise but okay according to uh the minister we had to keep quiet now patty we live in a democratic society i would like to think that i would like to think that we have a wonderful premier who's in charge but we were told, no, don't say anything, don't talk, don't talk to the media. The minister came in under the guise of darkness, and nobody was allowed to know when he was coming. And he looked at the plant, and he praised up the plant. And he talked to uh, the, the mayor, Steve Ryan, and he said, I was in municipal government. Well, that, usually that's a stepping stone to, to the provincial, and I'm really supporting you on this. So, okay, we kept silent and we didn't know anything. And all we keep getting, I keep talking back and forth to Steve, uh, update on such a day, update on such a day. And now, as we see, the crab has started uh, and the ocean is as calm as a bathtub. The weather is fabulous and many of the boats can't go out because the uh, plants are glutted. So, uh, like, we played into this political game. We were held at ransom, and now where are we to? Now we have to, now we're allowed to speak, whether we're not allowed or not, we're doing it. And time is running out. The crab has already uh, started the crab fishery, and the house closes next week for summer. So, like, time is of the essence. And I'd like to say that in the next 48 hours, we're having a show of support at the plant in St. Mary's. We want everybody, you can come with your pets, your grandmothers, your grandfathers, show up to that plant in the next, we'll post what time and what day, for a show of support. And I can tell you this much, Patty Daly, we're not stopping until we get what we want. And we, need, we, we can't afford to stop because people need the money. And that's where we're to with it. And, like, I mean, I encourage anybody else to call your line if you're a fish plant worker or whoever you are. All you need to do is get on and speak your voice. And we do live in a democratic society, and we have all our wonderful veterans who fought for that. And I want Premier Fury to take a stand on this and award that license to that plant. Yeah, I mean, and even the fish harvesters in the bay, because, I mean, they might have someone living in the house belong to them. Maybe their partner, their wife, or their children who yeah. might be able to take a job in that particular plant. There's so, so many people. There's a lot to I mean, it. right now in this area, Patty, there's not a house left. Everything that goes up for sale has been bought up. And how do you know But some of those people coming here won't look for work there? There's a young family just moved into St. Mary's, have a child in grade four and a baby. So, I mean, you know, like, and, and I'm following this group on Facebook, Moving to Newfoundland, and they're, like, they're, they're coming in droves. 
and they want to know where to live and, and how far away from whatever they'll be and my daughter's going to university, da da da. But regardless, the people who live here and who want to work there should be able to do so. And I mean, it's not costing the government one cent, one nickel, the cents are gone, one nickel. So, you know, I hope Premier Fury is listening today and his office or somebody in the Confederation building because we are not stopping. We were silent too long. Yeah. And I okay. felt that too. Like, I felt that we were playing the political game. Well, the political game is over now. Yeah, you weren't told you weren't allowed to speak. You were encouraged not to, but you we know, the whole. We were encouraged not to. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay. The whole concept of you get more with honey than you do with uh, with the salt or anything else. But we okay. did that. And I where understand, Mayor. I understand. Okay. Uh, I do appreciate the call. Would you like to say anything else before I have to take this break? No, I thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And yours. it's a gorgeous day, and that song was wonderful, but I'm just too riled to be able to enjoy it <laughs> but anyway I really hope other people get on and voice their opinion and we find out who's running this province who is the leader and I mean he's a wonderful man I've met him personally and my picture taken with him in 2019 his uh, display where he went uh, abroad helping the poor brought me to tears I was at a leadership conference in 2019 and I'd like to think that he's a very clear headed individual and that he will do the best that he can to give us what we need and what we deserve appreciate, appreciate the time Mayor Hayward thank, thank you thank you very much you're welcome bye bye Mayor Vernon Hayward from St. Vincent St. Stephen's and Peters River just quickly you know it always sounds like it's the very best path to have the independent or the quasi-independent arm's length entities like the PUB and like the processing panel, the licensing panel. You know, because it's really not good if politicians had control in full of all of these things. Because can you just imagine we're going to the polls, all of a sudden price of gas is 30 cents less. Not justified, not based on anything, simply that it might be a good idea politically. Then we're getting close to an election, there's a tight race in one community or another, all of a sudden there's a fish license. You know, so we don't really want politicians to be directly involved, but that's where we need people. Now, I think we've had Reg Ancy, the chair of the processing licensing board on here, and at that time I think we're talking about Royal Greenland. But... It would be nice to know exactly why and what forces are out there that keeps that plant in St. Mary's from opening. I know that the concentration in the processing sector has some pretty big players, and that's why there's things like tri trip limits, so they can manage their own sh onshore operations a bit more efficiently for them. Maybe not in the best interest of the harvester, but I'd like to know a bit more about that plant as well. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Joe, you're on the air. Hey, I ate some of those turbot uh, back in the Spanish War. I was at St. Pierre Miquelon. They weren't very good. Anyways, I'm wondering. I'm wondering why the um, about the, the St. Mary's plant, um, the fish plant. Now, God bless the Filipinos and Mexicans, but we're importing workers in Aquafort and Cape Royal to work at the fish plant. I'd, I'd like to know if there's any government uh, incentive for that. Uh, but why are we leaving other plants closed? Anyway, it it wouldn't be question. provincial, but you're, you're asking a curious question because if you can't get the locals to work, I don't think we want the plants to shutter themselves. But if no. So just help me understand how you couch that question. If we're importing workers and can't get workers in the immediate area to take on what might be just a few weeks and jeopardize whatever source of revenue or income they have coming in. So... Again, what does that have to do with bringing in workers as it pertains to St. Mary's? Just help me understand that piece of it. Well, we've got people there who want to work. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, apparently, you can't get the workers in Cape Royal and Aquafort. 
Yeah. You can't get them from town. You can't ship them in from Carbonier or any place. So if you've got people in a place that want to work, why not open that plant? So yeah. I agree. Don't yeah. close the plants in Aquafort and Cape Royal. But why not open that plant for people who want to work there? We're already there. I think importing workers is also a tricky piece of business because we're not talking about, you know, operations that have camps on site. And so you don't have to make the long distance commute from carbon air to aquafort every day or what have you that's where it becomes a really localized problem isn't it because if you establish something like you get temporary foreign worker status from the federal government and bring in some filipinos or wherever the, the workers are coming from the company would have to provide the housing so whether that be they rent a couple of units or they buy a bunch of or rent a bunch of hotel rooms or whatever versus someone who actually lives here so it's probably easier to bring in someone from manila than it is to encourage someone from carbon air to drive themselves in and out Aquaford every day, so it becomes a tricky piece of business, and I don't think they're all the circumstances are quite the same. What do you think? Well, I, I don't know all of the details, so you're 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 more of an expert than that. Listen to no, you. No, I'm no expert in anything. <laughs> Whatever I'm driving, anyway. Um, but I mean, they do provide they do provide housing for them in Aquaford and Cape Royal. But like I said, if there are people in St. Mary's who want to work. Uh, why not op- why not open that plant instead of the other ones? I, I think the people in Cape Royal and Aquaford deserve, you know, to have their fish plants working. I agree with that. But I just don't know. I'm like you. I'm, 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 I'd like to find out why the uh, plant in, Cape, in St. Mary is not, St. Mary's isn't open. It may be something as fundamental as the powerful lobbying voice that some of the bigger processing companies have because every plant that opens that processes the same species as they do may indeed see less species go through their doors. It might be just as fundamentally simple as that. But uh, I am going to uh, see if we can get some time with Reg Anstey. He's the chair of the processing licensing panel to talk about it. What he knows about the plant and the opportunities and the available workforce and, you know, maybe to answer some direct questions about pressures coming from industry. And Reg Anstey's a good guy. He's a quality guy. He's done lots of good things in this province. So this is not to be accusatory. I'm just looking for some answers. No. And I'm happy to have him on. Yeah. Exactly. By the way, those heritage moments, it's a pity when they're talking about archaeological uh, history of Newfoundland, and they say, this building destroyed in 2017 was an important part of our archaeological history. Anyways, i got to go. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Will I get the bouquet, Dave? No? Yes, get the bouquet. Let's go to line number three. Jack, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you, Jack. Uh, first of all, I'll ask you to excuse my speech. I'm having a bit of problem speaking there. I hope you can understand me. I can't, so go right ahead, Jack. Yep, you're fine. Uh, And what I'm calling about this morning, Patty, I wanted to throw out a bouquet to those uh, workers in the carbon hospital, the nurses, and and the kitchen staff, and the cleaning staff in particular, in the carbon hospital. I just came out of there after spending two and a half weeks. Twice they saved my life. I don't want to get into what's wrong with me. No problem. But I'm I'm home now, and you can say I'm bedridden. I'm calling from my bed. But I certainly do. You couldn't find a better nurse, a cleaning lady, or, or anything like that in Canada than you could at the Cabinet Hospital. That's someone happy I was there. Now, I can't say too much about the doctors because I only saw one. You know what I mean? I do, sir. He was a nice guy, treated me good and everything like that. But the the nurses and the cleaning ladies 
and the people that had to clean me up, man, you couldn't find better anywhere, I'm going to tell you. And I just want to make sure I hope the majority of them are listening this morning and they can hear my thank you. Jack, there's a lot of good, compassionate professionals in the healthcare system. Once you finally get in there, you find out that there's some yeah. good people. And I, I'm glad that you're on the mend at home after a couple and a half weeks at the Carbonair General. And I wish you nothing but the best in your recovery, Jack. Thanks very much, Pat. Take good care of yourself. And if it gets any better, if it gets any worse, I'll give you something next, you know. Please do. You're always welcome. All right, buddy. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome, Jack. Take your care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Let's go and take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Which line, David? Let's go four. Uh, Okay, let's go line number four. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. A couple of interesting uh, tidbits. Um, the price of gasoline in uh, Venezuela is three cents a liter, in Libya it's four cents a liter, in Iran it's seven cents a liter. Which which is interesting. You go to the other side of the coin. In, in U.S. it's a dollar fifty-six. Canada it's two dollars. U.K. it's two sixty-two. And for all the people calling on us to have cheaper fuel, like they do in Venezuela or Libya or Iran, because they produce there, Norway, it's three dollars and eleven cents a liter. Yeah, all impossible countries to compare. <laughs> really, I mean, Norway and a sovereign wealth fund in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars, and people talk about Norway all the time. Go to Norway and have a uh, bite to eat and a pint, and you'll find out quite quickly it's maybe not the greener pasture you think it is. And then Venezuela, of course, my goodness. Uh, a country in absolute tatters, but anyway. Yeah. yeah, I just you know I just thought it was fascinating to see the the difference. Like we assume everything's the same because we live in our little country, our little province, but it's amazing the difference across the, around the world. Mm-hmm. I, w- I wanted to jump into a kind of a difficult discussion, um, kind of sparked yesterday. But over the last little while, I know there was a grandson who called in about the gentleman who was in hospital, uh, and. Uh, you know, it has me thinking about, you know, what are the individuals and, and the family's responsibilities versus the taxpayer responsibilities for long-term care or persons with disabilities. And, you know, you've made the point that I think the gentleman's being charged at $39 a day to be in hospital. Yeah. Is that what the number is? I believe so, yes. Yeah. So, But if he was in the long-term care home, he'd, he'd actually be charged $100 a day. So it's, you know, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, if the man has a pension... And if he's, you know, this is the thing, we, we all sit back. And, and I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sparked by Jan Dion, who, you know, her father, um, she she basically renovated her house and her and her family moved into the basement and they moved their her mother-in-law and her parents into the upstairs and has home care workers coming in and they avail of a private nurse practitioner to look after their, you know, to make sure they get that care that yeah. they have. But individual life circumstances are varied right across the board and the issue about 39 versus more in a long-term care bed is the concept of fairness the man wants to be and has been evaluated to be a resident in the long-term care he's sitting or lying in a hospital bed to the $239 a day through no fault of his own that's the issue it's not about how much it costs to be in a long-term care facility be medically able to be discharged the bed is not available based on the interruptions we're getting the 260 bed units open in Gander Grand Falls Windsor so he's being charged for something he had nothing to, nothing to do with 
That, that's yeah, my so point I, there. I, I, yeah, I totally understand. And it's not, so, it's not even so much the individual circumstances. It's, it's the, you know, I reflect we have this aging population, which obviously is a massive liability. And, and we have to figure out how we're going to balance that. So, so when I look at there's a lot of people who, um, whose children and grandchildren, um, maybe they should be helping, helping the uh, the children, the parents stay in their home. I mean, I mean, one one big thing with health court is, and and it's universally, you know, in Denmark and places like that where they really focus on this. They're they're stopping the building of long-term care facilities and they're focusing more on home care. And you know, I, I look at people who spend their life accumulating assets. It could be summer homes, it could be uh, homes, it could be investments, whatever it is. And, and you know, most people do. And, and the people who don't, well, that's a different you know conversation. And and then you know, their their descendants all clamor to you know. I guess they feel like it's their inheritance. And, and I kind of take a little bit of a, a different aspect. A lot of people have 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 this, I guess. Uh, thought process that you know their parents you know or we all we accumulate you know we're contributing to the province therefore we should be able to when we retire we should be able to withdraw from that contribution well if you look at how much debt we've accumulated i don't think any of us have really uh contributed very much if you subtract the debt versus what we so there's really no big bank account that's that's there to look after us so so the real question is who's responsible to look after us when we when we get to that stage of our life, and in particular, if we have assets, if we have homes, and who's who, who's responsible to look after us? Is it really the taxpayer? Because ultimately, it's not the government. The government is, isn't some magic entity that has has money. It's it's ultimately collectively all of us. The government, without question, plays an active role in how we age in place or age in facilities. Look no further than some of the privately owned operations in this country, which has absolutely betrayed the residents and their families. Because if we leave it up to whether it be the private sector and or relying on people's own individual assets, like for instance, if I needed to take in my mother today, I would. But I tell you what, I don't even know how I'd rejig the house to handle it. I have no earthly idea. I have no earthly idea how I'd be able to avail of uh, my money to pay for home care and or the numbers of hours allowed by the federal or the provincial government. So it becomes extremely tricky piece of business. Aging in place, uh, aging at home, how we treat and deal with the fragile elderly. These, If government doesn't play a role in it and we leave people up to their own devices, I think we'd find the country seniors far worse off than we do at this moment, which is not a pretty picture. I mean, obviously, government plays a role in policy and in trying to think longer term and trying to act as a guide. But ultimately, when we look at most of the choices that we are making as a society, it's very, very short term. And, and you know, it's not that long ago that the expectation was the youngest son, for example, would inherit the house. And part of that deal was that they would then the parents would then live with them. And, you know, we put we created all these institutions. And, and of course, with COVID, that that actually had a big impact. But, you know, you put a whole bunch of vulnerable people in one place and then you bring people in who are serving them, caring for them, and potentially you 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 exacerbate the problem. So I'm not just sure it's fair to blame private versus public sector facilities versus, you know, I just know that, you know, I say to my parents, you know, if you spend everything that you have to stay in your home and you mortgage your house and you sell your summer home, you know, maybe I'll buy your summer home, maybe you'll give me a deal on it, but that's not the point. That That is, I think, the place where we need to start. I think we need to start with not looking at our parents' assets as being something that's going to get passed to us, looking at our parents' assets as part of their ability to, to enjoy 
their retirement. And, you know, at some point, obviously, with, with medical needs, you need to move into an institution. But I do believe we have too much of a focus of sending people into institutions. Well, it kind of depends why they're there, though. I mean, for starters, if you look at some of the academic research being done about forecasting the numbers of Canadians, seniors in particular, who will be living with dementia, that makes for an extraordinarily difficult age-in-place conversation. There are absolute professional requirements 24-7 for so many of these Canadians, and the numbers are, are staggering if people care to take a look. So that's where, you know... Further reliance on the individual and their family. Look, we're going to do all we can do to abide by my mother's wishes whenever that day comes. She wants to be at home or in one of our homes or in a long-term care facility. And it just kind of depends on your medical needs. It's it's not a one-size-fits-all in that world. It's extraordinarily complex because my parents' needs might be different from yours and Dave Williams or Brian Medores or anybody else's. So I, I, I think I get the point you're making. But anyway, would you like to say anything else while we have you this morning? Well, I just want to say in, in, in the category of random tenders and planning ahead, Public Works and Government Services Canada just dropped a uh, request for supply arrangements for Class 6, 7, and 8 electric trucks. The closing date is July 31st, 2046. Well, so, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty random. Anyway, yeah. everyone stay safe. Take care. Thanks, Tom. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break, and then we're going over to Eastern Europe and to, U- to the Ukraine, or Ukraine, pardon me, don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks. How are you doing? Uh, good, thanks. I want to talk about the situation in Ukraine, and uh, specifically about the uh, potential memberships of uh, Sweden and Finland to NATO and maybe some other countries uh, down the line uh, in uh, Eastern Europe. But, uh, you know, to, to, to counter the uh, the Russian aggression that's going on in Ukraine now. And I'd be all for Sweden and Finland joining NATO um, to, to counter the, the Russian threat uh, that currently exists. How does it counter the Russian threat in anywhere in the short term? Uh, it puts Russia on notice. You're putting a line in the sand, and it actually is a line in the sand if they do join NATO because it tells uh, that cockroach in the, in the Kremlin that if you attack Finland, you attack Sweden, you're attacking 30 other countries. Yeah, because it's, it's a defensive alliance. That's right. And always Article will five. be. You know, that's that's right. The Article 5 is, yeah. I guess, going to be something people either learn more about or hear more about uh, in the last month plus. Uh, I guess February is when the attacks began. Yeah. So, you know, and just a couple of curious things that might be a little bit aside what you're referring to. But, I mean, I am bombarded with biolab stuff and the Azov battalion and human trafficking as if Putin's in Ukraine doing the God's work go, doing God's work I mean pfft. then you look at what has happened to the hypersonic missiles hitting the strategically located city of Odessa and the numbers of graves and Vic- victory day you know the most patriotic holiday, patriotic holiday in Russia yesterday being celebrated without any victory to speak of in Ukraine it's all just so mindless it's just mind-boggling just how nuts it all is it's the propaganda on steroids right oh man uh like really and uh it's very interesting russian society the the under 50 crowd uh they get their uh you know news from from uh, the internet from facebook and vpns and and things like that but the people the older people still watch the the newscasts on television and radio which is obviously controlled by the the russian government right so you have two you have a schism there 
between the younger people in Russia and the older people. And the older people are buying this BS because they don't know anything else because they're not on the internet, generally speaking, and they're you know they're not into virtual private networks and Facebook and, and other uh, pl- platforms. Right? And even if they were, some countries on the dictatorial side of the world they scrub content too. So yeah. it's hard to get accurate information. I mean, look, we're talking about disinformation and how we trust one source or another in this part of the world, the most modernized, free society on the planet, and. Yet we, there's people and there's families of Russian soldiers that don't even know what's going on, and they're yeah. dead aren't being returned, and they may never know. It's just, you know, it's it's hard to put yourself in that position to try to have a clearer understanding with exactly why they think what they think, the information that they're given, and how they process it. You know, I, and again, not to derail what we're talking about, but even like a country like the Philippines. They're, uh, they're electing a Marcos <laughs> as the president. Why? They rewrote history. They're told one thing, and their opportunity to hear from outside forces and outside uh, learned people and or historians has been scrubbed to the point where they think martial law was good for the country and made them better off, and now, consequently, there's another Marcos in office. You know, I think it's a similar, well, it's maybe a bit tangential, but I think we can draw fairly squiggly lines between the two because it's all access to things you can verify, access to what has actually happened, as opposed to being told what's in the Putin, like Putin's best interest, which is what they're dealing with. Uh, anyway, I, I limited my intake of the war because it's just hard on the head. Yeah, it brings me to my second point <laughs> that I wanted to raise on this. Uh, and you, you mentioned the Philippines. Uh, I think uh, this this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine should uh, prompt a uh, a major rethink of NATO and its mission statements. And uh, I think NATO should be expanded. Not just, uh, you know, obviously Finland and, and Sweden and maybe some other European countries. But I think the North Atlantic Treaty Organization itself should be revamped to be a global uh, treaty organization. I think like Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, I think they should be added to to what is now NATO. Okay, let's take that conversation one step further. Does that put the the Putins and the Xi's of the world in a position where all of a sudden, like a rat that's you know cornered, will pounce, will lash out, whether or not it's in the rat's best interest? Does that put further actual pressure to tone down the rhetoric and the militarism that we see, or does that mean that they say, well, all is lost now, everybody's against us, let's find out the hard way? No, I, I think you got to box them in. I take the approach you got to box them in. Uh, you look at what uh, China is now looking at Taiwan. I think there's going to be imminent invasion of Taiwan. Probably. 25, 25 million people, a democratic country. It's the only it's the only truly democratic country in East Asia, uh, and you know continental Asia there, if you take out Japan and, and South Korea, in that area. And there, and you know it's it's 100 kilometers from mainland China, and Xi is looking to go in there. And I think we have to counter yeah, that thinking that he has. And especially, for, I, I think South Korea especially should join to send a message to that cockroach in North Korea. That uh, if he starts a war with South Korea, and if uh, if South Korea was a member of uh, what is now NATO, uh, this is not going to be your grandfather's South, uh, Korean War. You're going to have 30, 32 or 33 other countries jumping on your head. This is the only thing these guys understand, Patty. It's not talk. It's not, you know, moving red lines. It's not diplomacy. It's not diplomacy when you have Sergei Lavrov, your, your foreign minister, your top diplomat, uh, rattling the nuclear saber, right? The only thing these guys understand is a kick in the groin. 
talk is cheap to, means nothing to these guys. He need they, they need a kick in the groin. So you start putting pieces on the chessboard and say, okay, now these countries are members of NATO or an expanded NATO, whatever that would look like. We're just sending a message. We're not being aggressive. We're just sending a message to you guys. So Beijing, you need to listen up. Moscow, you need to listen up. You know? Yeah, I, I could completely understand the concept. Um, you know, it's like speaking to a, a child. It's one thing for the child to hear you, another thing for them to listen. So listening is the furthest thing from simply hearing. And whether or not there's any amount of soft diplomacy, hard diplomacy, uh, unilateral support for opposition to the Xi's and the, uh, the, the Youngs and the Putins, whether or not they hear the threat and actually evaluate what it means versus just not care because obviously at this moment in time they don't none of them have portrayed the fact that they care so what anyone else is saying but uh, a point taken colin anything else you'd like to say this morning no I, you know i'm not uh, i'm not a warmonger I'm no not, i'm not you know i don't want to see uh, conflict armed conflict anywhere but these guys they they push the envelope and clearly putin he's been planning this for at least 10, 15 years, you know, with the with the invasion of Crimea in 2014, and I, I think he would have I think he would have started the war in Ukraine before now, and I think what what stopped him was the COVID outbreak. I think that uh, either affected him personally. I think he may have been infected. Uh, his military apparatus they may have been infected. So I don't I don't think uh, he he you know he's he's moving to Ukraine. Back in February, I think uh, that was delayed because of because of COVID, COVID potentially. But uh, we got to start sending the message. Uh, our friends in the uh, southern hemisphere, New Zealand, Australia, our friends in Japan. Japan is a G7 country. I think they should be uh, invited to join NATO. They're already NATO partners, but they should be full members of NATO. And we need to revamp and realign uh, our goals and mission statement with with NATO. Right? NATO was formed after World War II. To, to between Canada and the United States and and the, and the European countries, and gradually expanded over the years, but it was in response to the Nazi threat, right? And and there would never be another war in Europe. And now we got another war in Europe, and it looks like we may, may may have another war in um, in the east in the East Asia with Taiwan, right? The world is a complicated place. Uh, I appreciate this, Colin. Thanks for the time. Cheers. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know how much uh, your brains and minds can consume, but with so many things right in front of us. And look, we should never, or I should never, not consider some of the other moving parts in the world, which absolutely have implications right here in this province. Even if we just spent some seven or eight minutes talking about Ukraine there, it absolutely has some impact on some of the things that we're dealing with in this country. It 100% does. You know, if you factor in the complications with the uh, price of gas, then there are stories about the price of cooking oil. I mean, Ukraine, Russia, Europe's breadbasket. Uh, Couple that with a 30% reduction in yield in grains here in Canada due to drought last year. All of these things work somewhat hand in glove, yet it is really difficult. And I'll admit for myself, it's difficult to try to focus on it all because potentially then you lose some focus on some things where we do have some political levers that can be pulled and some of the direct controls that the federal government, provincial government have on things. 
But the world is an interconnected, really small, complex place these days. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. He's the Shadow Minister of Finance. It's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I just wanted to call in again. Another week, another huge increase in gas prices and, uh, and another week of no action. Uh, we've been certainly uh, calling for this, as you know, for a long time. I know you've been inundated with calls. Uh, all of our members on this side have been inundated with calls from people looking for government to provide some kind of direction, some kind of hope, some kind of support for the people of the province who are really suffering. And there doesn't seem to be any willingness to do it. Yeah, not as of yet anyway. What, what I'll say to that is I think the right questions are being asked as a opposed to simply leaning on what will you do, it would be nice to have some firm numbers, even if it was just from the first quarter. How much was brought in on the provincial tax on gas? How much was brought in on the carbon tax? How much was brought in on HST simply associated with the sale of fuels? Then we'll have a number. Then we can start with that and say, okay, what's the air mark for alternative sources of energy because of carbon tax investment? Is it being done? No? Okay, well, let's use that bit of money to do something. What is it with HST? Can we change the water on the beans to apply the HST before, say, carbon tax? for instance, and or provincial tax. Then we'll have another number. Because if we're just talking the broad strokes, will you do something or won't you, we don't really have much to latch on to as opposed to emotion versus tangible issues like numbers. No, and you're absolutely right, Patty. I mean, the Premier and the Minister have both said they don't control the price of gas. And let's give them that. They don't. But what they do control is the amount of taxation that's on that gas, especially the amount of money, the amount of revenue coming into provincial coffers. And that's exactly what we've been asking about. Even today, the province benefits with increased HST because every time the price of gas goes up, government collects additional HST on it. So there are those numbers. And right now, the province in its coffers is collecting 44 cents, approximately 44 cents a litre on every litre of gas right now. So how do you break that down again? It's broken down between approximately 19 cents from HST, 11 cents from the carbon tax, and 14 and a half cents from provincial gas tax. So what flexibility does government have within those numbers? If the minister says she has no control over the tax that's charged on gas, then who does? Clearly, government has options here, and those options should be about how do we help find ways to rebate people, to do whatever is necessary to ease that burden. And, that's just, and you know, diesel fuel is the same thing. It's costing. It's going to have a significant impact. It's already having a significant impact on the cost of goods. So, you know, there are options for government to do that. There are. And uh, again, you know, without something to, you know, reverse engineer, give me a number and let's see what it looks like. Give me a number about uh, net family income where we might start a conversation about subsidies or home heat rebates or something. Because then if we do the math, then you can paint a clear picture to the people of the province. Okay. So with the five-point plan, they told us it cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $141 million, I think the number is. Let's associate the same mathematical exercise with fuels. 
and let's just see where we land. Because if government can make an argument that we just can't do it, and here's why, then at least we'll be able to point to the number and say, okay, well, just imagine if this money, and I hate kind of the, you know, you shouldn't have spent money on the Rothschild report, you should have right. spent it on this, but I do think if we had a number, we could ask really pointed questions, you know, and have, they would be forced to give you some answers versus everything's on the table. Because I'm tired of everything on the table, because for so many people in the province, what's on the table, not a lot. And, and, and it's also tiring to hear that more to come or there may be additional measures. It's encouraging. But what people really need to hear from their premier and from the minister is some definite solutions. Recognize the issue and formulate a plan to deal with it and say, here's what we're going to do. Here's when we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to do it. But when you talk about numbers, let me get, throw a number at you. There's a number in the budget under the salary details for government departments. They are budgeting to spend $70 million more than they actually needed last year. That's right in their budget. So one obviously would ask the question, do you need to spend all that money? If you didn't need it last year, do you need it this year? What options do you have? Why do you simply budget it? So, you know, when you look inside the budget, as we're starting to do in the estimates process, we find these numbers. You know, there are a number of vacant positions in government. I have asked how many have been vacant for more than six months? How many have been vacant for more than a year? I would have thought government would have that information at its fingertips. I still haven't received an answer. And this is not about job cuts. This is simply about right now you had a budget that you used last year. This is what you needed. And all of a sudden you've increased it by another $70 million this year. So what are the plans for that? Could some of that be used? What would your plan be, Tony? Let's just talk about going to the pumps to pump gasoline. Because well, if we pick every fuel, we're going to have a devil of a time getting through it. Let's just talk gas. So what do you propose? Do you propose rollback of provincial gas tax and we have that influence at the pump? Are you talking about means test support? Exactly what would you do if you had the druthers and your hands on the purse strings? First things right now, Patty, I would turn around and it'd be after that five cents that the pub is charging for the sh- shutdown of the company by Chance Refinery, that's still out there, that we still haven't got an answer on why that still exists. And there's more than one five cent, I should add. There's the five cents that goes to Silver Peak for distribution, but that's not the only five five cent implication. I don't know if people get that, but anyway. No, and the the next thing we would do, I mean, it was only a few weeks ago that they increased the carbon tax. You know, there was no need to take that two and a half cent increase. They could have kept government whole by simply reducing the provincial gas tax by a similar amount. But I'd be looking at what kind of rebate programs can we offer people? And I'd be looking at the current budget, not talking about increasing the expenditure, but looking at what you have budgeted now in your budget and how can you reallocate that. I just mentioned one particular area where there's a significant amount of money. That's what it needs to talk about. It's about making those choices. It's about turning around and finding ways to rebate back to the consumers. Is there actually an opportunity? There's a few things inside, inside the price of gasoline that we really have no control over, whether it be the price of the commodity itself, which we don't, uh, the excise tax federally, n- nothing we can do about that. Provincial tax, yes. Carbon tax, sort of, five cents, probably. But inside the carbon tax, with the negotiated bilateral agreement with the federal government, where we came up with our own scheme, we're not on the national federal scheme where there's some rebate dollars involved, can we actually do anything about the, that 11 cents without having to go back 
to the well and renegotiate some new deal? Because the provincial tax, we have all the control. We don't need to ask the federal government anything about that. But inside carbon tax, do we really have that ability? No, but what it means is that instead of changing the carbon tax, you actually reduce your provincial gas tax, as you just suggested. So in other words, the net tax stays the same, but we've seen it continue to go up. And the other one we do control, as you mentioned earlier, is the HST. You know, we're continuing to pay HST on HST. Now, whether that's something that's got to be done or negotiated federally or not, I don't know. But it needs to happen. I mean, the days of paying tax on tax should be over. You know, there's no reason for people to be paying tax on tax. Well, I don't think there's federal government involvement required there. HST has to be applied at point of sale. But based on uh, what exact point inside the price of fuel, for instance, if HST was applied to the price plus the federal excise tax, HST, and then the provincial tax, then the carbon tax, I don't think the feds, we don't have to ask them a single question. That's another mathematical question I'd like to have answered. You... Rejig when taxes are applied and give me an understanding of what that looks like. Give me an understanding of what that would look like against $2.17 on the Avalon for a liter of unleaded gas. That's another math question that I'd love to have an answer to. Right. And again, as I said earlier, every time the price of fuel goes up, they collect more revenue in HST. The other taxes are set, but HST goes up every single time the price of gas goes up. So surely government can look at how they rebate back some of that HST to people and how they can make it work. Because they're getting additional revenue every single time the price of gas goes up. They're getting additional revenue every single time the price of home heating fuel goes up. So, you know, those are additional revenues. Government has an ability to help the people of the province by looking at all of those additional revenues, as you have suggested, and finding a way to rebate back to the consumer. Because it's the people of the province that we're talking about here. Those are the ones that are hurting. Those are the people that drive to work every day because they have to commute to go to work. The people who have to travel for medical transportation to appointments and especially impacting people in rural Newfoundland and Labrador when it comes to having to travel for medical services or to travel to work. Even people in my home district on the Port of Port Peninsula who travel every day into Stephenville to go to work and back. People from Conception Bay North who travel into St. John's to go to work and back every day. There are people all over this province of ours who are having to do that every single day. And these prices are having a significant impact on their disposable income. So government has to find a way. If it's not through the tax break here at the pumps, it has to find a way to put more money back in people's pockets because people are truly hurting. Appreciate the time this morning, Tony. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye. Bye. It's Tony Wakeham. He's the PC member. For Stephenville Port of Port and the Shadow Finance Minister, now I will concede, as I've done many times, that any government revenue loss on one side will be picked up elsewhere, whether it be an increase in a tax or a fee or just additional borrowing. Because when you find yourself in a deficit position like we do, nothing's quite as simple as just giving a break because the break will be recouped elsewhere. That said, I think the immediate concern would be the focus of the vast majority of voters is the pinch at the pump and the pinch at the grocery store if there was some reprieve, even short term, even just for the summer, and then figure out what we might look at for the price of stove oils and home heating fuels next winter, you know, piece by piece, I think people would understand if we have to borrow more, then we have to borrow more because it's either the government borrows more or I do. And I know neither is perfect. 
and you know, people, the, the staunch liberal supporters say, well, what would the PCs do? And it's a fair question. Opposition's role is clear, and it's important. It's critically important. But we do need to have, you know, some of those questions also followed by potential solutions, of which Tony offered a couple there this morning. But the math questions, I think, are paramount to begin a real firm discussion with government about where we are and what we can do. How much is brought in on the provincial tax on gas? How much is brought in on the carbon tax? How much is brought in on the HST? How much would be brought in if we put HST on the price of fuel plus the federal excise tax and then applied provincial tax and then applied the carbon tax? If we get some answers to those questions, maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to have some uh, conversations that begin with some concrete numbers as opposed to emotions and everything's on the table. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Sterling, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how you doing this morning? Doing okay, thanks. How you doing? Good. I'm calling in about the Guardian program there. And, uh, on the rivers? Give a shout-out to uh, Clifford Small and advocating up in Ottawa, uh, asking questions to the uh, Minister of Fisheries, which is pretty vague on what she got to respond with. But uh, just wondering why there's not more funding going into the Guardian program. Here, here's a question that I don't know the answer to. Who funds the Rivers Guardian program? Is this uh, the Department of Wildlife here? I know the peace officer is given the same authority. So is it provincial and or does the federal government through DFO fund the River Guardians? I don't know the answer. No, and that's that's the thing. Like, where is our provincial government on this issue? Like, I haven't heard anything from, from those guys saying anything. Where's Fury on this issue? I just wonder, you know, who made the changes in policy, whether it be the amount of time the River Guardians are on the river, which should be extended to six months, right, through October, if, based on what I know about it. The change in the way they use their own vehicle, there's fewer of them covering larger areas. Consequently, the kilometer money isn't covering it. So I'd like to know who made those policy changes, to be honest. Maybe it's something I could figure out, but I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, it'd be nice to know how much DFO is given, actually, for this Guardian program sure. from Ottawa. You know what I mean? Like, I haven't seen any numbers on that. No, but just, you know, and here I am talking about we should all have take a few civics lessons to know who controls what. And on this front, I guess I'm, ta- I'm looking in the mirror and saying maybe I should understand this a bit more before we talk about it as much as we should and we can and we, and we have in the last number of days. So uh, if anyone knows the answer to that question, you can provide it. I'd be really pleased before I have to do my own quote-unquote research. The problem becomes quite extraordinary if people don't realize what's going on here. The, the amount of poaching in the province is off the charts. And those who are willing to drape a net across the river, they know the schedule of the guardian. They know how many there are. They know what the likelihood is of seeing them uh, during the season where they're active. They know full well there's still fish to be had when the guardians are off the river, and consequently they rear their ugly head, go back in the bush, and poach all that fish. So it has a big implication beyond just you know how many guardians are and how, many, how much they get paid. Yeah, well, I don't think it's the pay issue really is the thing. It's the amount of weeks that, that we're given uh, working on the rivers, you know what I mean? I don't know about you, but the last time I went ice fishing, I don't know anyone that ever checked anyone ice fishing. It's not only about the salmon, it's the inland fish, the trout, and every every other resource that we got. Oh, I'm with you. I mean, we, you know full well, if we don't, if we don't enforce the regulations, then the regulations are worthless. Exactly. Yeah. When it, when it comes to, I mean, Ottawa gives $650 million to B.C. for their salmon stock. I mean, even a portion of that could extend our program for the six months of a year. They pay us EI to sit home for 
37 weeks of a year. You know, I mean, why wouldn't it be feasible to throw in half of that money again and keep us working? Oh, gosh, it wouldn't and take most half. Of the Guardians want to be working, so. so. Of course, and it wouldn't take half. It would take a fraction of that to extend and, you know, increase the number of Guardians and to extend their coverage season to six months. But that's a really important question, Sterling. The amount of money spent on the West Coast and even the difference with how the fishery is managed on the West Coast is starkly different than how it's managed on the East Coast. Everything from wild stock to aquaculture and enforcement is just two different things. Inside Minister Joyce Murray's mandate letter is specific mention of Atlantic salmon conservation and what measures have been brought to bear because of her and her role and her department. Nothing that I can see. No, I don't think, I think if we add her paycheck, it would be enough to support our Guardian program for a couple of years, so. <laughs> yeah, and of course, but she'll come, uh, she'll be replaced by another fisheries minister, and we could say the same thing about that salary, as opposed to, let's have a long-term plan to understand the importance and why and how many and where they should be and the length of their season. And then, you know, then we can forget if it's the Liberals or the Tories or the Dippers or anybody else. We'll have a plan that makes sense to protect the rivers and the salmon as opposed to either Joyce Murray knows anything about it or or anybody else. So that's where I think we're all best served. But those are important questions. West Coast, East Coast, but the funding and decision-making, I'll figure that out by the end of the show this morning so we can talk about it again. Sounds good. Like I said, it'd be nice to be working for six months a year instead of uh, three. It sounds like you are a River Guardian, are you? I am a River Guardian, yeah. How long have you been at it? Uh, I'm only new to the program, but you can see the issues of the funding and not much work at at uh, the government levels. So whether our provincial government or our federal government needs to be more involved. Well, someone does. Whoever that may be needs to be more involved. Yeah, because I've been exchanging emails with a fellow who I believe, if I remember correctly, is entering into his 33rd season as a River Guardian. Yeah, we got a lot of River Guardians that's been here over 30 years. Uh, Like I said, there's no pension plan for those guys when they're done. Uh, I mean, what, what did he go on? I mean, 17 weeks a year, it's hard to stay afloat on 17 weeks a year. Sure. Uh, of course it is. Sterling, I appreciate the perspective as an actual river guardian. Good to have you on the show, and have a good, uh, successful, and safe season. Thank you, and hopefully we get some more weeks in the in the future. You're here. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome, sir. All the best. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, before we get to the news, let's go to line number five. Good morning, Eric. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for allowing me to be on the air this morning. Happy to do it. I can't hear you, Patty. I can hear you, sir. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay, Patty. I just want to say this morning that I have filed a class action lawsuit in the court against the Government of Canada, Federation of Newfoundland Indians, and the Alapu Chiefing Council. Uh, the class action has been filed, and we're waiting on a date now to go to court to argue it. So what I'm saying this morning to you people who doesn't, to the members who's non-status, it has reached now a class action lawsuit, and if the class action lawsuit fails, we will go to St. John's and fight it from St. John's to Ontario to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I'm asking all you people now to get together and form a rally. I will arrive in Newfoundland on Thursday. And I hope that someone will form a rally and by Saturday, and I will there and I'll explain everything to the people. What I have done. I have been fighting now this since 2018. 
So we're finally at the class action lawsuit. Okay, so do you have a date for the lawsuit? Did well, I miss that? Patty, it's in the court. They haven't given us a date yet because I, I understand that the government of Canada has not responded. But uh, the lawyers for the Qualiful Chief and Counsel has responded. Uh, so we're just waiting now on, I think, Kelly Peck to uh, send the re- reply in to ex- or whatever to accept the document. So has it actually been certified, or that's what you're waiting on? Well, yes. We're waiting on just a date to go to court to argue the points now. Okay. Okay, but there's no date set for the court yet. They have gotten it, and they confirmed they have received the document, but they haven't sent anything in the mail yet. All right, so where's the protest? One more time. Yeah, pardon me? Where's the, where and when is the protest? One more time. I'm calling on the people to form a protest for Saturday, and I'm also calling on the freedom truckers to put their use to something good. The Charter Rights has been broken. The, char- the rights of the people of the Qualiful Council, I'm sorry, apologize. The people, the non status people, their rights have been taken from them under the Charter Rights. And the Mobility Law, which guarantees us to go anywhere we want in this country, to be treated equally and the same. It says also that if you go into another province, you will be entitled to welfare. And that province will put in a program to help the people out. So therefore, freedom and the rights has been taken away from us. We have been denied our culture and we have been stopped from moving under mobility law, which states very clearly, you can go wherever you want and live in this country and be treated equally the same. The point system is illegal. It's not legal, I mean. Sorry, the point system is not, not legal. They put that in there and they violated the Charter of Rights and the Constitution. So I will continue to fight for the rights of my brothers and sisters. Eric? Until the last breath is taken out of me. I appreciate the time and the fight and keep us in the loop when you have a date. I certainly will. Okay, I'm Eric. I'm with my speech because I have a hard time with speech problem and I have time to saying the words, okay? No problem. Thank you very much, Patty. You're so welcome, all Eric. Freedom of choices show up on Saturday. Thank you, sir. Good luck. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, whatever you want to talk about, I'm into it. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. We're back. Hey, right, uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Vera. You're on the air. Hi, uh, good morning, Patty. Hi, Vera. Um, I'm calling about uh, having to travel to St. Anthony for dialysis three days a week with the price of gas and consuming, um, like, the travel and the wear and tear on your machines every day and doing repairs and whatever. The government pays... Uh, 20 uh, cents a kilometer for your travel, so that ends up probably about 20, 25 dollars uh, per trip. And um, you're gone about eight to 10 hours every day. And with the price of gas and everything going up, I mean, people's not gonna be able to afford to attend their, their appointment because they're not gonna have the money to go there. 
Yeah, I totally get that. So at this moment in time, give us an idea what it's costing simply to travel for your dialysis. I'd say it probably costs me uh, probably about 80 bucks a day. And I travel three times a week. So that's a uh, treats $240 uh, per week. And I mean, people on the Northern Peninsula are as far from rich because the government don't know that we exist on this end of earth. And uh, I mean, like people's just gonna have to, to uh, I mean, I don't know how they're gonna be able to travel and myself included. I mean, people, and this is our life. I mean, if we don't get those dialysis three times a week, that there, there's no way that we're going to live. And I mean, I've been fighting for months now, trying to get it in Flowers Cove. Uh, still no answers from nobody. And I mean, like, it's getting very frustrating. I would imagine it is. And this is just a question about dialysis as opposed to simply the price of fuel and what it means for you. Are you a potential candidate for at-home dialysis, Vera? Do you know? No, I'm not. You're not? Okay. No. And another thing is, I mean, like, there's times that you go there, you get sick or whatever. Uh, I mean, like, most time you got to have a driver to go with you. There's most time you can't get one. Then, I mean, like, you got to stay there until you're feeling better so that you can travel home. After dialysis, I mean, like, the clients are drained because, I mean, all, all their blood is took out of their body and pumped back. And, I mean, like, you know, it's a very draining uh, situation. And I don't seem like the government uh, cares at all about uh, their concerns. I've had uh, one meeting with Krista in the past, and I have talked to her once, and she told me that the dialysis in Flowers Cove was going to be the first part. That's three weeks ago now I talked to her, and I called her again this morning, but now she hasn't got back to me yet today. But if I don't hear from her in another couple of days, I mean, we're just going to have to take another hen route for to do something for her to try to get dialysis. Because if not, I mean, the people is just not going to be able to travel with the cost of everything. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those serious implications. If it's a cost you can't absorb, but it's for medical appointments, I mean, imagine, I mean, you can't do without your dialysis. So it's not like you're going to be able to do anything but not spend money on X, whether it be different types of food or be able to pay a bill on time because you're going to have to go get your life-saving dialysis. And, you know, those making the long-distance commute every day just yeah. try to put uh, food on the table. It's just yeah. widespread issue. The implications on the price of fuels is so omnipresent. It's at every, Everything we do is going to come back to cost of living, price of gas, inflation, and where does it end? I don't know, Vera, but I hope it ends soon. Well, I'm open too because I mean, like, if not, I mean, there's just going to come a time that uh, you're not going to be able to do it. And then if you can't do it, well, where is it too? You know, and I mean, like, it's really, really time for the government to wake up and look after their own. 
And I mean, as for Mr. Fury, uh, I think that he needs a lot of things to, because I don't think that he he knows too much myself personally. In the in the perspective of the government and and what the, the people need and don't need. I'm not, you know, it's walk a mile in my shoes. Is there also? It's a healthy concept, you know, to understand what people are going through. Like, I haven't walked a mile in your shoes regarding your need for dialysis, what it means to you individually and for your family, whether it be the time it takes and how frequently you have to travel and the price of fuel to do exactly that. So I do my best. I don't know how many politicians do their best to be empathetic and try to consider what its life is like for you. And I can't pretend that I can figure that all out either because it's tricky. What is important to me might not be important to you or other callers or listeners but you know trying to understand where people are coming from probably goes a long way to making better decisions because if we just look at numbers then we're trying to run the government like a business when it's not a business it's about people as much as it is about money so that whole walk a mile in my shoes is hard to do but we should make every effort yeah but i mean like i mean it's something that we we have to do for to live our life sure I understand. I mean, there, there's no turning back to to what it is, and uh, believe you me, uh, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. For to have to be doing what we have to do, uh, I mean, like I'm far from old. I'm only sixty years old, so I'm hoping that I got a few uh, years to live my life. And I'm going to be traveling the rest of my life back and forth to dialysis. And I mean, like, uh, right now, I mean, I'm at the situation that I can't work because of the, uh, that, uh, I mean, I have to travel to dialysis three days a week. I mean, um, then I got an hour and a half each way. I mean, it's brutal. There's no other word but brutal. I bet it is, Vera. Uh, and, and I understand your concerns as best I can, and I appreciate making time. I wish you well with your health, and we'll see if the government is hearing the people's plea just to try to acknowledge how difficult it is to make ends meet these well, days. It's worse than ever. Yes, but, I mean, even if the government had come up with some funding to help those people that need help or, uh, not, you know, or, or have to travel, like, the government is not doing nothing. They're just leaving us on the back burner. Uh, you know, you phone them, oh, I'll do this, I'll do that. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, it, that's the end of it, unless you phone them back again. And then uh, it just keeps to be a runaround. But, I mean, it's our life. Many people, and, many people and, feel exactly like you do, Vera. I'll give you the last word before we have to say goodbye. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, I'm hoping that the government will come up with something for us to uh, to help us and uh, to make things better. And I'm really hoping that the government is going to come across with those dialysis and flowers. Right now, we have nine constituents. Uh, they're doing dialysis from this area alone. And there's two or three left to come in the next week or two. 
And all hands are traveling to St. Anthony. And all is to travel into St. Anthony. I wish you all well, Vera. Thank you for your time this morning. Okay, I guess you'll be hearing from me again. Anytime. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Vera. Bye-bye. All right, uh, all right uh, let's take a break. But uh, the River Guardian program is fully funded by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans federally. The contract went to a private company called Sea Watch this year. It's valued in and around or just over $5 million. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Hollis Yetman is there. Talk about wildlife enforcement. Talk away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Hollis Yetman. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. I just wanted to uh, talk briefly about the uh, the River Guardian program. Uh, not the River Guardian program directly, but uh, I, I have to commend the guys that uh, have committed their lives to the River Guardian program. And, uh, you know, for the, to the measly 17 weeks of work uh, every summer, they, uh, they do a tremendous job. But back in the early 2000s, uh, there was a program called the Inland Fish Enforcement Program. It was a comprehensive partnership between the federal and provincial governments where a team of uh, wildlife enforcement officers were devoted and dedicated to uh, river protection, inland fish enforcement uh, during the summer months. And in the first year of uh, of that agreement in 2004, the team won the Award of Excellence for the uh, tremendous work and the amount of poaching and charges that were laid. And I'm just wondering why, um, you know, we don't discuss that option more. we got a trained team of wildlife enforcement officers and with all the gear, uh, why we can't enter into agreements such as that to do river enforcement again. Do we have enough of them to go around, cover their current duties, and expand? Well, that's a good question, and, uh, and one that I can't answer, uh, to be honest. But, uh, but it worked good then, and I don't think we have less officers now than we did then. Uh, and, uh, and we were able to commit a team to it, and it, and it, it was in place for a number of years. I, I'm going to guess it's four or five years. And uh, and it worked quite well. And, if, and in fact, uh, Danny Williams was bragging about it big time uh, back in the day. So um, uh, more discussion on, on, on that approach might be uh, interesting. Is that around the same time where there was a change to designation for wildlife officers, some that worked under the Department of Justice and some didn't? Well, there was no, I don't think that was a change, but there was a big amalgamation between the uh, the forestry departments and the wildlife departments, and okay. that's, been back and, that's been back and forth over the years, and uh, I'm not even sure where it's at now. you got some uh, some guys on the forestry side that are doing uh, nuisance wildlife. you got guys on the uh, enforcement, uh, the, the wildlife enforcement side that are just doing wildlife enforcement. They don't deal with the nuisance wildlife, so there's a mishmash of functions and duties that... Uh, that, that, that they should be overlapped, but they're not. They're all separated again, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's We're back and forth with that over the last 25 years, so I'm not really sure if it's uh, the best option or not, to be honest. I'm not sure either, but since you mentioned nuisance animals, and uh, again, I might be putting you on the spot, there was a big debate or argument maybe last year or two years ago, the years kind of blend together now, about who could be responsible for taking care of a nuisance animals, a.k.a. a moose, eat my crop. So the argument was you have to call wildlife versus if it's in the daylight hours, you have a clean shot, the farmer can take care of it. Whatever happened to all that? <laughs> I, I, I don't really know. There's not too many farms with, with animals on it that moose eat the crops up in Labrador and run to, but, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I do recall that. And, uh, and therein lies another problem. The public only knows that wildlife is wildlife, even though the forestry guys take care of the nuisance wildlife and the wildlife guys take care of the enforcement of wildlife. So uh, as, as, as time, uh, <laughs> time has passed to, uh, to amalgamate those departments and uh, put the officers in place that need to do the correct jobs and the public understands what everybody's doing, it's, 
it's uh, it's, it's been a mishmash for years, and uh, and it still is. Which leads to nothing but confusion. You know, especially for, say, someone like me sitting in this chair or for uh, others out there who are interested in conservation, interested in enforcement of the rules, but not even sure who to turn to, not even sure who to call if they have well, a question. That's a good point. And you talk about the uh, the river protections. I mean, we always, uh, you, you, you'd think that uh, our provincial wildlife officers would have some jurisdiction, but no, it's a federal jurisdiction, and our wildlife officers got... Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure they deal with it. Uh, deal with it when they come across it on the rivers, but they don't have a dedicated effort into it because it's a federal uh, jurisdiction. Even though there's not enough federal wildlife officers to cover all the ground, but collectively we do have lots of officers. When you look at the two departments plus the River Guardian program, it's just not enough cohesion there between it all, right? Sounds like it. Uh, again, when you, you might have people with very similar authority, very uh, similar job descriptions, but the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and consequently, we are where we are. Anything else you want to add to it this morning, Hollis? No, that's it, Patty. I just, uh, like I said, I commend the River Guardians for uh, for commitment over the years, and uh, I think it's high time that we uh, we beef up that program and also uh, put some cohesion between the uh, federal and the provincial jurisdictions in terms of river enforcement. Hundred percent. Nice to have you on, Hollis. Thank you. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Craig, you're on the air. Top of the morning, to you, Patty. Top of the morning. Some beautiful day. So far, so good. Yes, I was wondering. With that young lady that uh, is traveling from uh, the Flowers Cove area, she's not driving herself back and forth, is she? Well, she did make mention sometimes you have to take someone with you. Because uh, not only the price of gas, isn't that like a danger to herself and everybody else on the road? I don't know how debilitating uh, dialysis is, to be honest with you. And I guess it's different reaction from different individuals. So it sounded like she had someone accompany her. Okay, good. And I was thinking, you know, if uh, she cannot be the only person in the region that has to travel to St. Anthony for dialysis. No. So is there a possible way to synchronize appointments for people in that area and put in sort of like a go-bus system for them? Maybe, and the possibility for carpooling. But, of course, if I go... It's a rotating schedule, right? So she might be on Monday, Wednesday, Friday this week, and I'm on uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and consequently there might be very limited overlap. Now, of course, somebody in Flowers Cove must have a very similar appointment time, but let's say, for instance, we decide we're going to carpool. My appointment is for 9 o'clock, and I spend the entirety of the morning in the chair. Your appointment is for 1 o'clock, and you're there till 4 o'clock. So what my day has now meant is my 9 o'clock appointment, I leave the house no later than 7.30, and I get home no earlier than 5.30. That's an awful long day, three days a week. Yes, but I mean, I'm... I'm I'm thinking if they uh, have to have more, more than one machine, correct? Yeah, I would think so, yes. Obviously. So, I mean, it just doesn't take much imagination to say, okay, these people in this area are going to get this time slot, and that way it's just synchronization. Sure. Yeah, I mean, whatever government I mean, can do it's is... It's easy to, to talk, but, I mean, it's, it's probably a different thing to actually put together, but... Do you know what I mean? Anything that can be done in the world of scheduling uh, for people's convenience and the opportunity to share rides and all the rest of it should absolutely be something that the regional health authorities can and should consider. Why not? Absolutely. Exactly. 
Oh, well, uh, that was just my thought. I was just concerned for her. She said how draining it was that she'd be on the highway uh, after a treatment. Yeah, I, supp- I, I, I can't speak for Vera, but I suppose you can be drained on the highway sitting in the passenger seat as well because the procedure is indeed has an impact on the individual. Of course it does, but uh, I think she did make mention of, you know, you have to find someone to go with you or something along those lines, which leads me to believe she does have someone with her. Yes, and I took that to mean sometimes she can't find a driver. Uh, I I don't know. Uh, Again, I can't remember every single word that she said, but um, fair point. All right then, Patty. I I wish her well, and uh, I hope something is done for her. Everybody does. Thanks a lot, Craig. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, uh, I'm not going to squeeze in a call before we get to the break, but let's check the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Let's see the last comments coming in. So Derek says that he thinks each government department should be tasked with identifying situation to help residents. It's not rocket science. It's a matter of political will. And it's a matter of the left hand and the right hand knowing what each other is at. And that could be inside the provincial government itself and or the lack of cohesion between the federal government and the provincial government on matters such as Hollis Yetman was talking about. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, what's on top or tap? <laughs> That's up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Uh, just following up with our conversation there on Friday about the uh, River Guardians, uh, Patty, uh, and I'd like to bring up the, uh, what I sent you an email link there this morning, uh, MP, excuse me, Conservative MP Clifford Small uh, in question period yesterday put the question directly to Minister DFO Minister of Fisheries, uh, Murray, and uh, she stumbled over her answer. She didn't have an answer, and seemed like she was unaware of the whole situation. And you brought up the uh, example of uh, the Prime Minister's mandate letter to the Minister of Fisheries, and doesn't seem to be anything done still. Uh, you know, thank callers this morning and keeping the situation alive. I'd like to know, though, what the other liberal MPs in the province are saying about it. They wrote that letter for us, but it seems like they washed their hands of it after that. Uh, as well as the provincial uh, MHAs, what do they take, think about it? Uh, we're keeping it alive, Patty, uh, in conversation. I thank the two callers this morning. Uh, this, uh, this evening, on, uh, here and now, CBC, I have an interview coming out. I also have a letter to the, to the editor and a telegram to come out, too. So uh, the conversation is good about it, but what we need now is the action. And as we said, what we want, what we'd like to see is more River Guardian, more people hired on and trained. That's not realistic for this year, but we do want to see the employment season extended. Uh, another report I looked at the, from 2021, uh, there were approximately 46 nets confiscated. Now, Patty, that's great, but you look at, at the vast land, that could be three to five times higher that didn't get caught. Very likely when, you know, it's the whole concept of the unknown. We can think that the prevalence of poaching is one thing on the rivers. We can think the numbers of caribou that are poached, unless we find the skull or some remains, we're just taking some guesses. So, again, I think it all goes right back to in, uh, the bylaws and regulations and rules and laws. They're only as effective as the enforcement. Absolutely. And it's great to have the rules and regulations, but uh, as, you, as you previously mentioned, if there's no enforcement there, then it means at least class. Sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you, know. you know, I'm learning more and more about the overlap between the province and the feds and who funds what and the authority associated with 
uh, Wildlife Division, River Guardians, and others. And, you know, I appreciate the information as it flows in because I can't pretend that I know the inner workings of something I've never, ever touched or been involved with directly in my life. So Glenn adds to the conversation, says, Provincial wildlife officers do have jurisdiction as well for inland rivers, not just wildlife. Much of the tagging and licensing for salmon is provincial regs. Guardians are designated as wildlife officers. Provincial enforcement may deal with the Fish Fisheries Act issues if they arise too. So I think there might even be some fairly widespread confusion even amongst government departments in the province and government departments are where the overlap lies between the province and the federal government. So when that's the case, we're always doomed to make some pretty poor decisions. And, Patty, if that's the case, now with all this publicity going on, it's time to straighten it all out and make it clearer, clearer and uh, seal the deal. Sure, 100%. And, you know, it just seems uh, I don't know what it takes. You know, we were tra- we tried to go through the proper channels and to no avail after three years. And here we are. And it just seems that, you know, when we when we involve and get involved with the media and make it publicized, things that's when things start to happen. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, you know, I don't know what action is driven by comments that happen in the media, this show or otherwise, but until people realize it's an issue where they live and what the impact is on their life or their family, then, of course, we end up with these mishmash of issues. Uh, But I'm happy to talk about it. And uh, as well, Patty, there are letters of support for this initiative that were done in 2017 before myself and Paul White even started. Letters of, of uh, support from the Atlantic Salmon Federation, the Salmonoid Council of Newfoundland and Labrador, and the and Spawn. I've just uh, joined the board of directors at the SANE, uh, Salmon Association of Eastern Newfoundland, and we're currently doing up a letter of support as well to get more river guardians and uh, hire them out for a long period of time. Yeah, uh, the the six-month thing, I think, for me is as big an issue as any other because there's still lots of salmon in the, in the rivers upstream that can be poached after the guardians are hauled off the river, and everybody who's got the net in their trunk or in the back of their truck knows it, and that's where they come out to play. Absolutely. You nailed it on head, Teddy, and uh, it was a great summary that you made there this morning as well about what's been going on so far. Yeah, is, you know, again, I appreciate the contributions, whether it be, you know, Sterling, who was a guardian, and Paul White, who had called earlier in the week, and your knowledge of the issue. It certainly helps me understand it so we can talk about it a bit more sensibly. Patty, uh, I have a couple more quick, quick topics just to touch on. Uh, one that you mentioned this morning about the farmers. I, I myself, and Lucas Roberts attended the uh, meeting for the farmers at the, with the moose, pro- moose problems on farms uh, yeah. and here on the East Coast. And that pro- program, Patty, was uh, initiated in, in, in the 70s and became uh, a, a debate there last year or a couple of years ago when Minister uh, then-Minister then Byrne uh, said that he was going to discontinue it. And that's what caused the kerfuffle. Um, I think it's been reinstated, though. And uh, as well now, with this time of the year as well, Patty, with the moose on the highways, I'd like to just make the public aware, just keep an extra eye out to make sure that, uh, you know, they have a safe trip on the highway just because we're not seeing that many moose on the highway. doesn't mean that they're there. And this time of year is, is the one type time that they, uh, they're out and about a lot more. Absolutely. A fair warning, as usual, Barry. I appreciate making time for the show. Thank you very much, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. All right, goodbye. Let's move uh, to line number two. Daryl, you're on the air. 
Hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad. You? Not too bad. Thanks. Uh, the weather is good, so it's all good. And thanks for having me on your show. Uh, Patty, what I want to talk about today, uh, as you know, uh, everything is going out of uh, out of uh, whack these days with cost of living and so forth, interest rates. And I guess I'm the outside looking in, but when you look at interest rates, that's not going to uh, curb inflation. Interest rates is uh, good for the banks making more profits and they're, and they're up, and, and people put more burden on people with uh, uh, if they got loans or mortgages or whatever the case may be. What will curb inflation is bringing down the costs of energy and fuel. It's going right through the roof, as you know, and uh, and people, you just can't sustain it. So, so if the cost keeps going up and up, it's going to affect the whole economy in general. And we're going to go from a, a severe uh, pandemic financially now to a recession. And how are you going to get people go to work in Canada now? There's one million people, uh, one million vacancies now in Canada. People can't even afford to go and drive to work, so yeah. But just hold on a second. effects, right? And not, not only that. Okay, go ahead. Well, interest rates absolutely have an impact on inflation. Monetary policy absolutely has an impact on inflation. I don't know why people think it doesn't. I uh, know. How do how do it bring down inflation? That the cost of fuel and energy is fueling inflation. When you look it's at more it, than when that. you go to grocery, no, when you go to the grocery store now. The groceries is double. That's 100%. Fuel's up about 40%. So that's 140%. I don't know where they get their figures, 6 or 8%, Stats Canada. It's incorrect. It's not accurate uh, readings. But so that alone, that's 140%. No, but... The, uh, okay. You know what I'm saying? Not really. If something's up yeah. 100% and something else is up 40%, that doesn't mean that something's up 140%. Well, it is 140% because fuel's up 40% and groceries is up 100 well, yeah. I don't know where those that, numbers that, come from. A, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Uh, but that's 140%. So, and, and that's not including all the other amenities. Uh, 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 you know, we're promoting tourism or all sectors. Uh, I, listened to, uh, I looked at the one trucking company. It's costing them $10,000 a month per truck diesel fuel. So how are these small businesses going to survive? The only remedy to it is that the federal and provincial government is going to have to do something. I mean, we're almost the highest now in North America, cost-wise, and, and it's, it's just crazy. Uh, I mean, so we, I mean, something, something's got to be done. I mean, the, uh, there's places that the fuel's cheaper, and what we are here, we're probably the second highest, and they don't have no regulatory board. They don't have a public utilities board. And we got public utilities board, and all they're doing is regulating heights and upping the costs. What province doesn't have a regulator? Well, not all of them got regulators. Really? I know Nova Scotia and PEI, but no, not all of them. Nova now Scotia does. be corrected. Yeah, Nova Scotia do. I know that, but not all of them got regulators. Uh, so, like as Dan Tag would say, let the free market dictate. At least if a price goes up, a few, you got events notice by a couple of days. Public utility board, you wake up, oh. We're up another uh, 11 cents today. Bangle. And all they're doing is regulating heights. And all they're doing is representing the 1%. And the 1% is the rich. And the 1% is usually a minimum salary $573,000 a year plus. Because they're not representing the common man. It's just going up and up and it's gone crazy. I'll throw a solution out here now today. And this is probably people might think, oh, I don't know what they'll think. But... 
the federal and provincial governments are spending millions of dollars uh, and billions of dollars like on other things and yes they're trying to do things to help people and and get things going well why don't they offer the taxpayers a sur package so that uh, they alleviate to alleviate the cost expenses what we're dealing with today and and this, and when you look at that package it's not government money. It's the taxpayers' money. It's our money that will go right back into what, the economy again until we stay. Offer a serve package to everybody to compensate for the for the cost of living. What's uh, happening now? The emergency response benefit, similar well, package? Well, it is emergency. Look at it. You had a lady on your show just before me. Would I can't even afford to go to the, uh, get her health care provided for uh, expense-wise, uh, dialysis or whatever. That's just one of many examples. So that money is not our money is our money so give us back our money and we'll go back into economy until things stabilize what other uh, remedy is there patty everything's going to is going on broke well one of the contributing you know one of the contributing factors to inflation of which there are many right. is that there's pent-up demand and there's plenty of money out there chasing fewer services and fewer well, goods that's an absolutely well, contributor price of fuel yeah. is a contributor housing a bigger one the yeah. global supply chain whether it be even the absence of some products like for a long time we were unable to get semiconductors now with right. interruption issues and uh, uh, droughts and reduced yields. I mean, there's a lot contributes to inflation. But, you know, yeah. back in the 70s, it was all about one thing and one thing only. It was that there was too right. much money in the economy chasing whatever was the existing uh, supplies and services. We figured out that the world has become a much smaller place since the 1970s. So even the concept yeah. that it's one policy, one politician, one bank that has influenced uh, inflation worldwide is kind of nonsense, right? And we don't have the worst inflation in North America, and we don't, we're nowhere near where the Americans are. Right now, we have a 31-year high at 6.7%. It absolutely is out of control, and it needs yeah. something needs to give. Uh, but, you know, just for an example, and this is not a defense of one politician or another, but to pretend that... Any particular public policy in this country has caused is the root cause of all inflation is just a bit silly. I mean, how did a piece of inf uh, uh, monetary policy or fiscal policy in Canada influence inflation in the United States or in Germany or in Scandinavia? The short answer is it hasn't. So the contributing factors are pretty complicated stuff. Did the Bank of Canada wait too long to deal with interest rates? Probably. Uh, does anything that the federal liberals done contribute to inflationary pressures in Germany? No. So there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. So, uh, the basics are more money chasing fewer goods. That, and you know, then we can extenuate it to all the reasons why there's a limited supply of goods and come up with a full, comprehensive, complete picture. But I think we get a bit caught up in it. And that's why I think people should really, really, really think long and hard about the political rhetoric surrounding these things. Because if we don't also include the 70-year high in profitability, then we're missing a big part of the conversation. It's not all about politics, politicians. Sometimes policy should outweigh some of the I almost cursed that, the nonsense that they get on with. But anyway, I'll give you the final word, Daryl. Well, uh, Patty, you are right uh, when it comes to politicians. Policies is more effective, and it's not enough time spent on policies versus political uh, avocation or whatever the case may be. But uh, when you said the rate of inflation, 8.7, I don't agree with those figures because groceries <laughs> have doubled, energy's gone up. I'm outside looking in. You can laugh at me. Well, no, it's, but, I mean, but, uh, you don't believe you the figures. you look at the whole picture and plus other things, 
we saw is, and as far as I'm concerned, is love is total manipulation on the horrors to be because you look at Shell Canada, they just re- released a report, $11 billion profit. $11 billion. The banks are making record profits. So where's the happy medium to here? So the only remedy is, the, you, you're right what you said about in the 70s. Government printed a lot of money and created inflation. So what are they doing now? They but you just said they should create more. more. Well, they got, like, well, exactly what I'm saying. They got no other choice because we're gone broke. So you got to keep printing more now to try to hopefully stabilize things. Yeah, but th- and we got no control over the world economy. Yes, you're right, but it's our money, so give the money back to the people, and then it'll go back into the economy, and then when things stable off, well, then fine and dandy. Because oh, right now, okay, you, you, you're getting feedback from people from your calling you in, and you listen to them. And so what sort of remedy do they like, get Dan tag on your show? He'd be going, no. he, he'll tell you, he even said nah. the Pope should throw in the towel. Okay. Dan Mateg is good. He, he knows the stuff. That's just uh, just one example. But mm-hmm. something's got to be done on the federal and provincial level. Patty. Save money. Save people money at point of purchase, not print more money. I mean, because people well, are trying to have it both ways here. Too much money chasing too few supplies and goods. Let's put more money out there as opposed to saving some money at point of purchase, which is exactly what people need you know more yeah. money in our hands to chase stuff that's not there just how, increases inflation like I, but how are people going to save money when they can't afford to save uh, daryl so, so tell me that one you can't save if, the, if you've got more money coming out and coming you cannot save daryl if you save them money at the point of purchase, as opposed to give them more money chasing goods that aren't there, you're making things worse. Oh, if you could, if you, you could are making things worse. No, I I don't totally well, agree. I agree with you to some point, but not but, totally there. But okay. but the the bottom line is that there's going to have to be an intervention of the federal and provincial government to do something because things are going to deteriorate worse and worse. And there's no easy fix to there's no easy fix to it all. But put money back in people's pockets, it's only gonna go back into the economy. You stop and think about it. Okay. I appreciate the time, Daryl. Thanks for the well, call. Well, well again, thanks uh, for your time as well, Patty, and uh, all the best and have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. All right, uh, last break of the day, don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Greg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, sir. Well, I talked to you uh, about two or three weeks ago about this money that the government came out with for the five-point plan. Uh, okay. And uh, I wondered if that's being sent out because I, last time I talked to you, you said it was, as of your knowledge, it was put in the mail on the 18th of April. Yeah, it depends on what monies we're talking about. So the seniors' benefit issues, provincial, the old age top-up was federal. So that monies did go out on the 18th of April. But the seniors' benefit increase here... Uh, the 10%, I guess that comes out in the next quarter. That's oh. how I understand that. Okay, no, I was talking about the one, the one that $200 for seniors. Yeah, the old age top-up, see, there's a couple of things. So for folks who had their GIS uh, compromised because of CERB benefits, they're going to get it all back. The $500 checked one-time top-up in old age security before the 10%, that's out. The $200, my understanding was that monies was out the door uh, in the same week, 18th, the week of 18th of April. So that's how the government has described when the money was going out. So that's all I know about it, to be honest with you, Greg. Oh, okay, no, because my mom, she haven't well let me have a look around and see if there's been some sort of announced delay in it but i'm not aware of it at this moment in time but i make sure i'll I'll promise that i'll have a look on behalf of you and your mother right after the show okay thanks you're welcome all the best 
All right, Dave, we're going to play a little birthday tune for Donovan on our way out. All right, so good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.